You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, welcome, y'all. Thanks for being here. Um, This is part two in a four-part series about Jesus's passion predictions. Um, This class began with a question that came up in a Bible study I was teaching. Someone asked, did Jesus ever actually tell the disciples he was going to die? And, you know, as I started planning for this, I thought, they can't be the only ones that have ever asked that question. And as a matter of fact, as you read through Jesus's passion predictions, you see that his disciples missed it too. So obviously not the only ones to ask that question. So um, before we get started, let me pray for us and then we'll get going. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, thank you for this day and for bringing us to the beginning of it. Lord, I pray um, that there would be less of me and more of you, that um, my words would be your words and through them you would be glorified. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, this is part two, so I'm going to do a very brief review of last week. Um, So first, I just wanted to give a little explanation of my subtitle. These are Jesus's passion predictions, and I subtitled it, I think he's trying to tell us something, and that's just kind of... um, I'm kind of imagining like that as a speech bubble above the disciples' heads, right? Because Jesus gives this very clear prediction three times of his death, and the disciples misunderstand or totally miss it every single time. So they're like, I think he's trying to tell us something. Now, and this happens because they're just too caught up in their vision of who Messiah would be and what he would be like. Um, they're imagining more of a warrior or like some mighty military guy that's going to come in and overthrow the Romans in a military coup, not a guy who will die like a common criminal. Now, bear with me here. This may seem a little silly. I would love to say that my fascination with superheroes just comes from me being an excellent boy mom. But the truth is, I'm usually driving the bus behind us going to see the latest Marvel film. Um, but this, this particular picture I like because we see Jesus here and he's telling all these great superheroes and that's how I saved the world. And see how confused, especially the Hulk. I love the way the Hulk's looking at him like, huh, because this doesn't make sense, right? This isn't the way that we would imagine this sort of thing happening. And I think it's fair to say that the disciples were kind of imagining a first century version of one of these guys for their Messiah. You know, somebody coming in in a big, powerful way um, to save them. And, And we get this because who doesn't love a superhero savior, right? Good looking guy in fashion forward costume swoops in and saves the day with flashy stunts and clever one liners. We love that, we eat that stuff up. But that's not who scripture says um, that Messiah would be. That's not how Jesus will save and rescue. um, His rescue will be far greater. The disciples just can't wrap their heads around it. But the disciples' confusion reminds us how strange it is, how weird to embrace a suffering Christ to accept as savior, one who is on his way to be executed. We need, we need some chairs, y'all. <laughs> okay, sorry. 
I'm sorry. So in this four-part series, we'll look at all three predictions. They're recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels and also alluded to in the Gospel of John. We're primarily going to work from Mark's Gospel, but I'll draw from others as it's helpful. So for each one of Jesus's passion predictions, we're going to look at what Jesus actually tells his disciples, what prompts each one of his predictions, and we're going to look at Jesus's teaching following each one. Now, this is the last leg of Jesus's earthly ministry. Things are getting real, and we see that in his teaching of his disciples. Thank you, John. Um, so in his teaching, he has three main objectives. He wants his disciples to know, without a doubt, who he is and what he came to do, the nature of the kingdom of heaven, and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus knows his disciples aren't going to understand this now, but he tells them now before it takes place so that when it takes place, they may believe. So in our last episode, remember this is part two, um, Jesus gave his first prediction and the catalyst was Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Messiah. Now, why was this the catalyst? We talked about this last week, but if somebody can remind us of that, why was Peter's confession the catalyst for this passion prediction? Because even as Peter confessed Jesus as Christ, it was clear that his understanding of who Jesus was as Messiah was limited, that he didn't really understand what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah. And we read on later in scripture that, um, that Jesus says that Peter's confession of, of him as Messiah is divinely given. But Peter's understanding of what that means is incomplete. So that is why, um, Peter's confession is the catalyst for his first prediction. So Jesus responds to Peter's confession with his first foretelling of his death and resurrection. And we see that here. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. We really liked that part in my Bible study when the question came up. Um, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So how does Peter respond to Jesus's prediction? What does he do? Yeah, he rebukes him, right? Um, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Matthew records Peter saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And you know, Jesus was like, oh good, thank goodness you're here, Peter. You know, I was kind of worried. Okay, that's not what happens, right? What is Jesus's response to Peter's rebuke? That's right. So let's look at that. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him right back. And Jesus uses a very strong rebuke here. Now, this might sound unnecessarily harsh. I mean, he calls Peter Satan, right? I mean, Peter is just trying to look out for Jesus, reassure Jesus that he's got his back. 
Considering Peter's good intentions, Jesus's response seems unkind until you think about what Peter has actually just said of what his rebuke of, um, his rebuke of Jesus suggests. So let me just give you an example. So think about like with kids, for instance. Doesn't a child's misbehavior, like the danger involved or the seriousnesses of the seriousness of the potential consequences drive the harshness of the parent's rebuke, right? So like if your child smears food in his hair, you're gonna respond with less intensity than if he runs out into traffic or is playing with open flame, right? If your teenager comes in after curfew, you're gonna respond a little differently than you would if he comes home drunk, right? So that's what we see here. Um, another thing to notice is what Jesus says first. What does he say first here? I know you guys can't really see, I'm so sorry. But turning and seeing his disciples. Jesus is very aware that all of the disciples are watching this go down. So he's very aware of how they might be impacted by Peter's misunderstanding. Um, he recognizes the influence that Peter's rebuke might have on the others. So the harshness of Jesus's rebuke makes sense once you realize the serious ramifications of what Peter is suggesting. And we begin to see that with Jesus's next statement. So what does Jesus say next? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What does Jesus mean by that? What does he mean that Peter is setting his mind on the things of man? Thanks, Coffee. That's great. Everything y'all said, right? This is what, um, actually, I felt like a lot of what um, Ben said in his sermon was kind of queuing me up for today. You know, this is a lot of that upside down kingdom of God that we're talking about here. Um, in Matthew, Jesus even goes on to call Peter a hindrance. What is Jesus saying that Peter's a hindrance to? When Peter's saying this, what is he, what is he hindering? will of God, right? That is what Jesus's mission is. That is why he's here. That is what he came to do. So the things of man are the things of the world, the concerns of the flesh, the devices and desires of our own hearts that run counter to the things of God and his kingdom. Romans 8, 6 says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Jesus isn't saying to neglect your worldly responsibilities, your relationships. The things of man aren't necessarily bad things, but no matter how good any of them are, they're temporal, they're fleeting, they're the havel or vapor that the author of Ecclesiastes writes about. And it's important to notice the phrase that Jesus use here, uses here. Jesus tells Peter he is setting his mind. There's a great, great quote, and I think it's Martin Luther, but I might be wrong. Um, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building nests in your hair, right? That's what he means by setting your mind on. Jesus is spelling out the differences between thinking about being aware and caring appropriately for something as opposed to setting it as our first priority and main concern. When we set our minds on lesser things, we are eventually left empty. Possessions and accomplishments and approval and power, they have no power to save us. Peter has set his mind on the things of man, including his definition of victory, which does not include humiliation and death. Satan, 
our enemy, who prowls like a lion seeking to devour, lives to distract us from the things of God. Satan's goal is to be a hindrance, to thwart God's plan for salvation with the lure of a false salvation through lesser things. Think about Jesus in the desert for a minute. Each of Satan's temptations were designed to lure Jesus' desire away from God's mission and towards his own self-fulfillment. But Jesus is concerned only with the things of God and with teaching his disciples about the things of God, which are not how we naturally operate. They're not our default, not what we are instinctively drawn to. The things of God and his kingdom are different, counterintuitive, and seemingly bizarre, like a dying Messiah. Now, this is a hard word alert. Jesus's rebuke of Peter is a reminder to him and to us that there is no neutral position. Paul Zoll was fond of quoting this lyric from a Bob Dylan song, you're gonna have to serve somebody. We are always serving somebody, always following somebody. We are either serving Jesus or we're serving Satan. In this first prediction, Jesus says the Son of Man must, indicating that his suffering and death are an imperative, not one of several good options, not, well, if none of this works out, we could try this. And we see this when we consider why we refer to Jesus' death and resurrection as his passion. See, the way that we use the word passion is a strong emotion, right? Something that flames up really quickly, but also dies out, right? And that's not at all what this word means originally. Passion comes from a Latin word that means to endure or to suffer. It was used in early Latin translations of the Bible, and it was used to describe the time from Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane to the time of his death on the cross. So the way we use the word passion isn't at all describing what Jesus did. Jesus' passion, his suffering, was not like, um, was not due to a strong emotion, but to settled purpose. Jesus came to earth for this purpose and fulfilled it with steadfast commitment. Jesus' passion was necessary to accomplish the salvation of the world. There are no shortcuts. To attempt to dodge or circumvent Jesus' way to the cross is to stand in opposition to God. Suggesting he might prevent Jesus from offering his life to God, Peter was aligning himself with the forces that oppose God. Now, I'm not hating on Peter here. I mean, was it Peter's intention to be in league with the devil when he gave Jesus what for? Of course not. Peter's intentions were good. Like David offering to build God a nicer place to live, David had good intentions. Um, but those intentions were based on David's will, not the will of God. I read this quote somewhere, and I can't remember who said it. A sincere heart coupled with man's thinking leads to disaster. And it echoes Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Evil very rarely tap dances up to us, announcing its intended malice. And this is why scripture exhorts us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Human intellect can be a destructive force if not kept in check by God's truth. Jesus' harsh rebuke is a necessary reorientation 
of Peter's way of thinking. So let me stop there. Do we have any comments or questions so far? Okay, I'm going to move on. We've got a lot to do. <laughs> so now Jesus takes his teaching from the tight circle of the twelve and calling the crowd to him begins to teach all those who are traveling with them. So if these guys, the twelve and anyone else, intend to continue on this road with Jesus, Jesus is ensuring they know just what it means to follow him. Peter's rebuke made it clear that he is still operating from the world's view of what the Messiah must be and what a disciple's role is, and it's probably safe to assume that Peter is not the only one. Jesus teaches to shift their worldly view to a kingdom view, and he does this by way of an invitation. Now let's think about invitations for a while. Who doesn't love to get an invitation, right? Think about the best invitation you ever received. What made it so special? What are some things that make an invitation really great? It's exclusive. It, right, you're like, I'm special, right? Okay, what else? What else makes one really great? Anticipation, I guess. Anticipation, yeah. Yeah. It requires a response from you. Requires a response from you. The person who's inviting you, they thought of me. Um, what about the occasion, right? It could be a really exciting occasion. It could be a really great opportunity or a fancy trip somewhere. So many things that can make an invitation really great. I just love getting a really good invitation. So let's look at the invitation that Jesus extends here. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So as invitations go, Jesus's is kind of a bummer. I mean, it's kind of disappointing and a little weird, but that tracks, right? With everything that Jesus has been teaching throughout his ministry about the things of man versus the things of God, flesh versus spirit, kingdom of the world versus the kingdom of heaven, what would be weird would be if Jesus' invita invitation was more like the ones we are accustomed to receiving. So to whom does Jesus offer this invitation? Who's invited? Anyone. This is an open invitation. Jesus issues this invitation to the crowd and says, if anyone would come after me, prostitutes, tax collectors, Samaritans, lepers, Jews, Gentiles, women, children, this is not an exclusive invitation. No exclusions. Anyone. And what is Jesus inviting them to do? Come after me. Jesus is inviting anyone who wants to, to come after him. Now, Jesus is not just trying to fill up his roster or increase his fan base. Jesus extends this open invitation to anyone who sincerely believes in him, who wants to follow his ways and will continue to spread his gospel message after Jesus's earthly ministry comes to an end. Now, what's involved in this invitation? While this is an open invitation, no exclusions, there are terms and conditions. Now, nobody panic. I'm not talking about conditions for salvation. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to secure the salvation once for all of everyone who believes in him. The terms and conditions give, that Jesus gives here are a pattern of the life of a follower of Christ, not an assessment of how well we execute them. 
Everybody good? Nobody's calling the gospel police? Okay. So he says, if anyone, what are the conditions? He lists three. Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Well, so far, this sounds like an absolutely terrible invitation. Who would come to this party? According to the wisdom of the world, no one. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has had huge crowds following him around, amazed by his miracles, delighted by his saltiness with the religious leaders, intrigued by his teaching. But here, Jesus asks, do you really know what you're signing on for? What does Jesus mean when he says his follower must deny himself? So this is a really strong expression in Greek. It means to disown or refuse to associate with. This is the word that Peter will use later when he says, I don't know the man. When Jesus tells his followers they must deny themselves, he's telling us that we will say, I don't want to be associated with the person I was before I became a believer. To deny oneself is to die to self. Now, we're not talking about asceticism here. God might call you to this lifestyle, but that's not what Jesus is referring to here. To deny oneself, to die to self, means giving Jesus complete reign of everything we have and everything we are. Giving up control of the running of our lives and surrendering to Jesus as King and Lord of our lives. It means my feelings, thoughts, opinions, ideas, and relationships are under the authority of the Bible and prioritized by what God says first. Denying oneself means he leads and we follow. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the potter, we are the clay. He is the vine and we are the branches. Y'all, we fight it with everything we've got, but there's so much freedom in being a branch. Now, all of this flew in the face of the works righteousness system of Judaism at the time, which taught that you could be good enough for God to accept you based on what you did or didn't do. But denying oneself means abandoning my self-effort, my self-will, my self-confidence. This is not in our wheelhouse. This runs counter to our every urge to be in control and have our way. But discipleship begins with that, with desire and that desire comes from God. With the gift of that desire, we begin to see that Christ and his gospel of grace are so valuable that no personal sacrifice is too much. This is what drove the apostle Paul to say he counted all that he had before Christ as rubbish. Most importantly, we begin to see that we have no power within ourselves to do any of this. The invitation that Jesus is offering to anyone is not <clears throat> excuse me, a way of life, like a new diet or exercise routine that we adopt until the next one comes along. What Jesus is offering is a new life in him. Jesus is the change agent, the driving force that draws us and enables us by his Holy Spirit to repent of a life of self and turn to life in him. It is Jesus's work in us that causes us to submit and surrender ourselves, our souls and our bodies to him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So the next item on Jesus's list is take up your cross. 
for us, the cross has become a regular item of decoration, right? Necklaces, wall hangings, pieces of art. And if we aren't careful, we can forget what the cross actually meant. In the first century, the cross was a Roman instrument of torture reserved for the worst criminals exacting a grueling, torturous death. Around this time, 30,000 Jews were crucified by the Romans, often in mass numbers. The slave revolt led by Spartacus in 71 ended with him and 6,000 of his followers lining the road on crosses. Prior to Jesus' resurrection, it would have been really morbid to decorate or wear a cross as a necklace. Now, I found it really interesting that when Jesus invites his followers to take up your cross, he hasn't yet mentioned the type of death that he will suffer. But still, because of the specter of the cross in that culture at that time, everyone gathered would have understood, take up your cross to describe a person walking to his death. The death march began when the Roman soldier told the criminal to pick up your cross. When a person was sentenced to death by crucifixion, he was forced to carry the crossbeam of the cross he was going to be executed on. And then he would carry his cross through town while people yelled, mocked, spit, and hit at him. The criminal knew when he picked up his cross, he was walking the death march of a person deemed unfit to continue living. Take up your cross identified a person with the despised, the rejected, ridiculed, and doomed of society. So what did that mean for Jesus' disciples? Just like the convicted criminal knew his life was over when he picked up his cross, for the follower of Jesus, metaphorically, picking up his cross meant living for himself was over. From now on, the disciple will live for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. For the disciple, the cross marks the end of his old life and the pattern of a new one. St. Paul described it in his letter to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith is important here because it is only through the faith the disciples have been given that they or any of us can do this. Taking up my cross means giving up my kingdom where I'm in charge and call all the shots for the kingdom of God where I humbly submit to his divine authority. Taking up my cross means crucifying my fascination with the things of this world. For the disciples, it meant among other things, putting to death their idea of how their Messiah would save. Taking up your cross means accepting rejection. Just as a criminal on a death march faced rejection and ridicule as he carried his cross through town, just as Jesus did. Followers of Jesus will face rejection and ridicule because of our faith. And taking up your cross involves weird countercultural things like loving your enemies and forgiving those who have wronged you. And taking up your cross, in some cases, means serious persecution. Jesus warns his disciples that as the world hates him, his followers will also be hated. This means that if we are seeking to live godly lives, we can expect animosity from a lost world. St. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, this doesn't mean that we have permission to behave badly and then call the poor response we receive persecution. 
Unfortunately, some people will take a verse like this and use it to support acting like a jerk for Jesus. Scripture doesn't support that, and that sort of behavior only damages our Christian witness. And it's important to note that taking up our cross isn't a one-time event. Luke's account of Jesus' first passion prediction goes like this, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Matthew and Luke include daily in Jesus' invitation as an important reminder that taking up our cross, taking our death march to self, is our ongoing sanctification, our daily being refined and set apart by God for God. Taking up our cross is the continual daily practice of placing our life before God as a living sacrifice, submitting and surrendering in humility to the regenerative and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit so that we may do all such good works as he has prepared for us to walk in. Now, the final condition of Jesus' invitation is to follow me. This is the life of a follower of Christ, continual, like dying to self. The Greek used here is translated, let him be following me. And like dying to self and picking up our cross, this is not something we do in our own strength, will, or power. We don't come up with a 30-day plan to die to self or go to take up your cross boot camp. The if in Jesus' invitation is more like since, describing the state of being someone who has placed his or her life in Jesus' hands, like the descriptions of the blessed in the Beatitudes. It is only once our eyes are opened to our complete poverty of spirit that Jesus can begin to shape us into people who, though imperfectly, follow him in obedience. Now, it seems by this point, some in the crowd might have been like, um, I think I might have left the oven on back home. I'm just going to go check that. I can't help but wonder if some of the disciples were a little iffy about this invitation. I mean, it isn't great, right? No signing bonus, no paid vacation, no promise of upward mobility, only loss and humiliation and death. I don't know, Jesus. I mean, I've got it pretty good. And Jesus says, or whoever would save his life will lose it. Most of the disciples probably felt like they'd lost enough already. Home, career, family. It's too much to ask, Jesus. The cost is too high. What's in it for me? But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It is a lot to ask, and it costs Jesus everything. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But the one who is asking is the one who denied himself, the one who willingly took up his cross and literally died. For us, so that our lives are saved in him, and through him we gain everything. We say we can't, and Jesus says, you're right, you can't, but I can, and I will, and I did, for you.
And why? Simply because you're mine. And I love you. So, next week, we'll look at Jesus' second prediction of his passion. Um, does anybody have questions or comments before we pray? Okay. Well, thank you all for being here. And we will have part three, which is actually the second prediction. Just anyway, part one was long. But, um, so, we'll see um, what that is next week. So, let me pray for us and then um, can enjoy your day. Gracious Lord, um, thank you for this time to share your word. Lord, I just pray that, um, again, that my words would be your words, Lord, that you would use them, um, Lord, and that your promise that they would not return to you empty um, would be fulfilled here. Um, Lord, I thank you for um, this gathering here today, and thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. Pray it all in his name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.